Hello, my name is Richard Fern. I'm joined today by Professor Andrew Oswald, uh, one of the country's leading uh, economists uh, and of the University of Warwick Economics Department. Andrew, over the last two to three years, prices, the price of a barrel of oil has more than doubled. How would we expect that to affect the world economy? Historically, if we look at movements in the price of oil, spikes upwards in, in the price have usually produced big trouble for the world economy, and I suppose that's what I would expect to see this time again, maybe a year or, or two years down the line. The British economy, and more generally the global economy, is, is going to have to face up to a very painful problem, and that is that high oil prices are necessary to solve global warming, and low oil prices are necessary to keep the Western economy is going with high profits and prosperity. And we are caught in that giant conflict for the rest of our lives. We need very expensive oil, but to live the way we've traditionally lived, we need very cheap oil. I don't know how to solve that. Nobody does, but facing up to the enormity of that problem should be right at the front of our minds. Uh, clearly, if you think about your life, oil is a very fundamental component of the way you travel. It's a fundamental component into what you wear, what you eat, fertilizers, many, many uh, chemicals hidden behind the scenes of your life. When the price of oil shoots up, apart from the fact that it's much more expensive to fill up your car, which you do notice, um, this tends to have a, a, a very severe effect on the way economies function. It eats away profit margins and it tends to raise unemployment and depress output. In fact, in the 1970s, we saw this, didn't we? We saw this very powerfully twice in the 1970s. The, the really uh, severe recessions in the world economy in the post-war era were just after the two great oil price spikes of 74 and 79, 1974 and 1979, I don't see us being able to survive very expensive petroleum indefinitely. And yet we haven't seen the massive rises in unemployment. Why do you think that might be? Uh, one point to recall is that the lags are very slow. When the price of oil spikes up today, our work tends to find that it won't be for a year and a half to two years before you notice the impact of the, the very expensive oil price today onto, say, the unemployment rate. And that's because oil works at a very fundamental level through the economy, people hold, holding stockpiles. It takes a while for producers and consumers to alter their behaviour, to alter their pricing, and so on. So the influence of oil is very pervasive, but it also runs very slow and deep in the economy. So just because there's been an oil price shock, and six months later things are fine, that, that's not a reason for you to believe, that's not a reason for people to believe it'll be fine also in the long run. Is there any way to calculate the correlation? Is, is there a way to say, well, so many, so many dollars on a barrel of oil means so many jobs in the world economy? Yes, we have tried to do that kind of calculation. Obviously, it's fraught with difficulty, but broad brush, if you look at the post-war era say 10 to 15 dollars on a barrel of oil about 10 to 15 dollars on a barrel of oil which is quite a big move is a getting on for one percentage point of unemployment on the US unemployment rate so say you had a 30 dollar move in a barrel of oil perhaps from 40 dollars to 70 dollars traditionally that would have pushed up the unemployment rate in the United States, which is the key economy, by a couple of percentage points, say from 6% to 8%. And eventually you really notice those kinds of unemployment changes. Yes, because those become very big numbers indeed. 
Yeah, because that's that's a really severe recession. Spikes in unemployment cause a huge amount of unhappiness. Uh, you have theorised that, in fact, uh, the uh, the knock-on effects of oil price rises have been cushioned within the economy in the recent period. Yes, I have talked about that. This, this is a common view, I think, among economists now. Uh, petroleum has been expensive, but the world economy has survived. Nobody really understands why that's happened, how we've managed to survive it this time. But, but the current theory is that China has expanded so much and pushed down prices. Uh, interest rates have been very low. People have been borrowing. In a sense, we, we've manoeuvred around the usual effects of oil prices. But I don't think anyone, in, any, anybody believes we can keep on doing that. So it's really been the effect of cheap money and cheap labour? Certainly cheap money. Um, interest rates have been lower than I think almost anybody expected and Americans and British consumers and others have been going to their bank and saying look my house price has shot up in value it's really cheap to borrow why don't you just give me some money because I want a new car or I want to cushion myself against other kinds of expenses the oil price hasn't bitten in the way that usually we've seen but uh, generally we think these these one-off factors um, will eventually dissipate. So there's a, a bubble out there waiting to burst. The standard view expressed by, by many economists is that there are so-called global imbalances, that things look um, less healthy under the surface than they do on the surface. And with $75 a barrel for oil, um, that's expensive oil by almost any standards of the post-war era, the big price spikes in oil in the past have always presaged, always produced, uh, indeed we think, recessions. And it's natural, though we might get away with it, it's natural to expect trouble if these kinds of oil prices continue. What's causing these spikes? I, I asked that question because I saw an interview, I think, with the head of Shell Oil that's recently announced massive profits, saying that he didn't understand why these spikes were taking place. Certainly uncertainty about the Middle East, fear about what might happen happen in the Middle East, whereas about Iran, whether there might be some major conflict with Iran, um, it's a big exporter of oil. Iran produces about 4 million barrels a day of oil. The world gets through about 80, 85 million barrels a day. Um, Iran's a very important exporting country, but also just generally tremendous demand. The, the world economy has been prospering. China now imports uh, 3 million barrels a day of oil, more than it did a decade ago. Chinese demand for oil has gone up tremendously. In a sense, there's nowhere for that to come from. An economist will tell you if demand shoots up, and you can't really increase the world's supply of oil very quickly, that you're going to have trouble, you're going to have high prices. At the moment, people are discussing the problems of peak oil and the idea that supply simply cannot expand indefinitely. And indeed, peak oil day, the day upon which uh, somehow the curve tops out, we can't find any more, that day has passed. Well, it depends where you are in the world. Of course, peak oil uh, passed in the United States, I think in the 1960s, maybe the 50s, I'd have to go back and check, so the United States is now producing about 7 million barrels a day and it gets through, well, about 20 million, I'd have to check. Or in other words, it's a major importer of oil and, um, 
as every year passes, the United States will produce less and less oil. Britain is topping out around now. We produce about one and a half million barrels a day, very roughly, and it it seems like we're we're at the peak. Of course, there will be some parts of the world, like Saudi Arabia, where we haven't reached the peak, but this is uh, not a renewable resource. Remember, uh, in any sensible uh, way of thinking, and. Uh, although we will never run out of oil in a literal sense, uh, presumably throughout my lifetime, lifetime and my children's lifetime, the, the balance between demand and supply will become worse and worse. The price will continue to rise. And of course, for, for that reason, and because of global warming, we have to substitute away from black gold in our lives. That's a, it's a big deal. It's a big question, isn't it? I mean, it, let's 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 think for a second about it. Uh, our, our listeners could look round the room that they're currently sat in, the computer or the iPod that are listening to, uh, listening to this this broadcast on. That's all plastics. Mm-hmm. The seat that they're sat in is plastics. Mm-hmm. Most of the fittings in the room will be plastics. They will have driven to work, driven to home, in a car, obviously powered by oil. Uh, the the effect of petroleum upon our society is massive. And if we start to lose that input, it's, it's quite scary when you think about it. Yes. I, I doubt if the average citizen in, in the West realises how much his or her life is moulded by um, the influence of petroleum. I mean, re- petroleum has defined the way that we live. It, it's defined the way that our society functions, and particularly, of course, through its influence on providing pretty much limitless travel for my generation. In the long run, that's not sustainable through petroleum, unless there's some amazing revolution that means we, we can get technical revolution, which means we can get much more energy out of every drop of oil. Nobody knows what the world will look like in 50 years' time, obviously, with climate change uh, being apparently the, the most uh, difficult problem of our era. I assume we're all going to have to live differently. 50 years from now, I won't be here to discover. Um, We just have to substitute away from a lifestyle that revolves directly and indirectly on petroleum. Do you see, or rather, what policy initiatives should the government be putting in place now, do you think, in the light of that observation? If we're serious about tackling climate change, and realistically we're not, But if we are, then we need much more expensive petrol. We need much more expensive uh, aeroplane flights. Um, This is standard knowledge among those who care about the environment or study uh, environmental issues. Uh, The government has to make it, governments around the world have to make it much more expensive to use fossil fuels. I'd like to think that that will happen. That, that governments will enact those policies, but I don't realistically think so, not in the next 10 or 20 years, because consumers all over the world will not tolerate it, and, and in particular American drivers will not tolerate it. About uh, one-eighth of all the oil used in the world in a day, about one-eighth uh, comes uh, from the right foot of the American motorist. And I just don't see, having lived in America... I don't see that um, those uh, consumers are going to change how they view the world or the price of gasoline without some cataclysm hitting them. In fact, it would be a very brave government, wouldn't it, that, that for instance, decided to raise taxes on um, air freight because that government would be 
crucifying its own economy if other governments didn't follow suit? We need coordinated action um, because, of course, uh, an individual or an individual government wants everybody else to fix the climate change problem. Um, we need coordinated action in a way that we've never seen, I suppose, in the world that I can think of, uh, in the history of the world. And uh, unfortunately, one has to be gloomy um, about where we'll be 50 years from now. I worry about my children's future. I assume that will follow the long human tradition of going on until there's some real dreadful disaster, and then we'll put human ingenuity into uh, adapting how we act and live but it's going to be very painful, I think, before it gets better. In, uh, it would seem that market forces are actually going to be the stopper here. Eventually, oil will become so expensive that, hey, that's how the hammer falls. Well, if we're trying to solve the global warming problem, of course, we have to do more than uh, slow down our consumption of oil. We have to slow down our consumption of coal and anything else that generates CO2 uh, emissions. But of co oil is certainly in the way we live at the moment, the key uh, influence. And of course, that's principally, I, I would say, because we take transport for granted, both through the clouds and, and on land. Hmm. So, Professor, assuming then that we have to abandon oil-fired power stations, assuming then that gas doesn't provide us a solution, what are our options? The nuclear option, for instance, will be available to us. I'm prepared to consider the nuclear uh, option, uh, of course, there's a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what we do with nuclear waste, and, and uh, environmentalists quite rightly worry about that. Um, I, I would just be prepared to, to look into it. Um, at the moment, I, I don't see an, an alternative way of providing enough energy in Western society to replace uh, oil and coal. Now, we should say something here about renewables like wind energy and, and solar and maybe even wave power. I, I would like to see us look into all those and, and extend what we do in Western society. There's nothing new uh, in, in me or some other economists saying that. I, I do think it's important, though, to be clear in one's mind about the underlying or, or a really key underlying problem with renewable energies, and that is that they almost always need huge land areas. I'm not sure that the average Western citizen understands this, but the tr tremendous thing about oil or coal, for that matter, is it's a very, very concentrated energy source. If you're going to replace a fossil fuel burning power station, say with wind farms, you need enormous land area. We recently did a calculation where, imagine we were going to use hydrogen cars, hydrogen cells in cars, which is a possible option for the future, and power, the, power up the hydrogen cells uh, using wind power to replace the oil-based cars that we use. Say we do that calculation for Britain. Well, the wind farms necessary to do that, just to replace the petrol that we burn, would cover far more than the area of Wales. Um, this is simply an, just an, an almost inconceivable amount of land that would be given over just to windmills. The, the average British citizen doesn't understand this. If we put it round the, the shores of Britain, although that would be fantastically expensive, I'm afraid I forget the arithmetic, but it's something like you need a corridor of windmills completely surrounding Britain of the order of, was it um, 15 miles wide, perhaps? 
the, the key point, and, and it's much the same is true of solar or growing uh, biofuel crops and so on, the key point that environmentalists and, and the green movement have to face up to, we all have to face up to, is that you need these enormous land areas to get the renewable energy that will be necessary if we're to live our lives in the way that we do to replace oil and coal. What about microenergies? I'm not sure I, I know what microenergies boil down to if they're not all these sorts of biofuels, uh, wave power and so on. The, the, the generic point will remain insofar as I've seen all the data. If we're to continue living in the same lifestyle, then we're going to have to give up over an awful lot of Britain or France or Belgium, whatever country we live in, to the sheer production of energy. Professor Andrew Oswald, thank you very much indeed.